So the way I write is again, because I'm a pantser, um, I write and I write, I tend to write short chapters as well. Um, and so when I'm writing, when I, and when I'm working on a project, I try to write a chapter a day. That's my goal. So not a word count. I don't do like I need 2000 words a day or 500 words. It's like, I try to write a chapter of the chapter 750 words and I've done that. That's it. I don't do any more on that for that day. I might go to another book, but I'm not going to go back to that. So, so the idea is that at the end of every chapter, I, I leave a hook that makes me want to come back, you know, so I'm not thinking about the reader I'm thinking, I need to come back to this book tomorrow and I got to get to the next chapter and it, and, and write it. And I need something that's going to make me want to do that. So that's my hook for me. So I really am writing for me. Hello there, my fellow sophisticated creatives. Welcome to JCV Art Studio from the dressing room. Ozzy is in the studio with me. He's quiet. We did our run this morning. Um, so we, we may be uninterrupted. You guys probably can't hear him, but I can hear him snoring. My name is Joanna. Today's guest is multi-published author, Judy Hans Schillack. She is the author of two mystery series, The Marketville Mysteries and The Glaff Doll Glaff. I swear I've had coffee. The Glass Dolphin Mystery Series. Her work can also be found in many collections and anthologies. Judy is the chair of the Crime Writers of Canada. And Judy, congratulations on Skeletons in the Attic. It's part of your Marketville mystery. I understand it hit number one on Kindle and Kobo. And also, is it number four on Nook? Yes, that's correct. Oh, thank you. First of all, thank you so much for having me here today, Joanna. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's always fun to talk about my books. Uh, and yeah, Skeletons in the Attic was actually originally published in 2016. It's uh, when it was when it came out August 2016. It was number one on Amazon for 30 days, um, and I have the screenshot where I was number one, and Michael Connelly was number two, and Stephen King was number three. So that was pretty, <laughs> pretty cool. And since that time, it it like it often just drops down, and then it'll resurge again, um, and and. So Wednesday actually did, ran a promotion and it was like wildly successful. So um, the hope is, of course, that people will then read books two and three in the series and then my other series. That's cool. That's very cool. And mm -hmm. congratulations. People don't realize, I shouldn't say people, there's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes. You know. Oh, so absolutely. You know, I always tell um, brand new, like people that are aspiring authors, I say to them, savor this because you will never again have the luxury of you know time to just keep going back and doing this or that you know because you're there's marketing and there's all these other things that that are that as you say take away from the writing so i always tell people to savor that that first novel yeah and J judy comes to us from uh the big to from toronto um and I have to say, so I love Vancouver. I, I love the tall buildings. And I 
have a warm spot for when I was a child. And the first time my mom drove me into Toronto and not being able to see the tops, the roofs of the skyscrapers. So I always thought that was really, I think that's really cool. So actually I live in a really small town now. I, I grew up in Toronto. I was born and raised there, educated there. Um, but I, I lived in small towns basically since uh, post-secondary. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. So Judy, I understand you were the senior editor of New England Antiques Journal. And I can see how your experience works well in the setting of where there's a will. Your your latest your latest novel. What I want to know is what was the inspiration behind Arabella Carpenter? having an antique shop called the glass dolphin. So the, yes, I was the senior editor for new England antiques journal from 2008 to 2018 when sadly it folded uh, a victim to, you know, print a decline in print magazines. Um, and it was a great gig. Prior to that, I was a, um, the editor for a Canadian antiques publication, Antiques and Collectibles Showcase, and I freelanced for um, New England Antiques Journal when their editor left um, and my other gig kind of ended, they asked me to come on board. So it was it was a great it was great because I learned so much about antiques. The the, the guy that was the editor in chief, John Fisk, is just a, a wealth of information. And um, you know we we would get a lot of scholarly articles and, and part of my job would be to turn those into interesting articles because scholars are often not as interesting as they could be. <laughs> They're very knowledgeable. Um, so I learned so much. And so when I decided to start writing um, a novel back in, I guess it was around 2012, I thought, I, I think I'm going to um, try to write a novel. And so I thought, oh, I'll I'll have an antiques shop because I knew about antiques and I'll have a freelance writer because that's what I was. And so Emily Garland, freelance writer, um, Arabella Carpenter, antique shop owner. And then as far as the name, um, I originally called it the blue dolphin after these blue dolphin candlesticks that um, Arabella had found as her very first antiques find. But then I discovered there was a blue dolphin antique shop in Maine. And so I changed it to the glass dolphin. So it's kind of how I got there. Yeah. It was just like, write what you know. Those were two things that I knew about. Right. Just kind of venturing off here a bit. When I was reading about you, you were saying, write what you know. And I remember when I started writing, I thought, okay, write what I know. I know about um Victoria, I know about Nanaimo. I know about the courthouses in Nanaimo. I know about the prosecutor system. But then, you know, I'd be reading, oh, no one's going to publish something that's located in Canada. So I thought, okay, well, let's have this little arm that um, my heroine's uh, law firm is situated out of Seattle. Because just so I, it's almost like so I would meet the requirements. But I thought, I know nothing about Seattle. Have you come across that sort of situation? So I was given the same advice, don't set your books in Canada. Um, and my both my series, including the one that Skeletons in the Attic, which is number one, yeah. um, are set in small towns in Ontario. Um, yeah. And when people tell me that, I say, 
I think there is a certain truth to that in the very cozy, cozy market. And by the cozy, cozy, I mean the cats, crafts, and cookie recipes type of cozies. I think there, there's still an expectation that those books are set in some place in the United States. But like you, I, I'm not a huge traveler, and um, I, I, and I, I believe that your setting is every bit as much of, of a character as your characters are, are. And so, to me, I don't. I know the small towns that I've lived in, and and the the vibe that they have, and the kind of people that live there. But I don't know anything about a small town in the United States, and. And there are regional differences. I mean, there are differences between the town I'm living in now and the town I lived in five years ago. And they're, you know, 30 minutes apart. So I, I, I just disregarded that advice because I didn't think it was good. I think today there's more acceptance for stories set in Canada. I mean, certainly Louise Penny has been wildly successful. Giles Blunt's Cardinal series, I mean, it's, it's phenomenal. Um, Linwood Barkley, I think he does tend to put places books in the States, that's true. Maureen Jennings, you know, yeah. Murdoch Mysteries set in Toronto. So um, I think Gail Bowen, I mean, I think there's lots of examples of really good Canadian crime fiction that's not set in the United States, that is set in Canada, and, and those authors have good followings. I think if you write a good story, people will want to read it. Exactly, yes. and. I remember when I gave my manuscript to my editor, Pip, that was one of the things she picked out. She goes, is there any particular reason why we have to mention, you know, Seattle? And I felt, I felt like <laughs> not an idiot, but it was, it was one of these conversations of, well, when I originally wrote this, I was told that, <laughs> right? And she's like, no, <laughs> you don't need you know, that. Because, you know, you know, Victoria, but, but, those that don't, it's it's exotic to them, right? Yeah. Like that's the thing. Like like I only been to Victoria once, and it was for a day. I was like at the a conference in Vancouver, and then I went for a day trip to Victoria. So I know basically nothing except that little bit I saw in four hours. So for me to read about it would be would be like visiting there, like a free trip. I I can't imagine why people don't don't want to do that. But I think it's bad advice. That's my point. I think it's bad advice. Yeah, yeah. Well, I ended up taking Seattle totally out. <laughs> Before we give, get into your third novel, The Glass Dolphin, in the Glass Dolphin Mystery Series, Where There's a Will, mm -hmm. can you please give the listeners a summary of what Where There's a Will is all about? Sure. So Glass Dolphin Mysteries, like you said, there's three books in that series, uh, The Hangman's News, A Hole-in-One, and then Where There's a Will. From the beginning, I knew it was a three-book series. I, I didn't want it to be 10 books or 15. So I sort of had an idea going in how I wanted the characters to end, where, the, where I wanted their lives to sort of be at the, at the end of the book. And that's different from than normal for me because normally I have no idea how things are going to end. I start writing and just kind of go with the flow. This one I actually wrote the end before I wrote the beginning because I knew this is where I want Arabelle to be. This is where I want Emily to be in their lives. And so um, it's basically the story. Emily is now um, a partner in the uh, in the uh, antique shop. She in the first book she is not, 
and she's getting married to somebody that she met in the second book. And um, so she's house hunting and she's very excited about that. And she wants to ha have a family and all of that. And Arabella um, is a bit older and, and um, is trying and a little bit concerned about the antique shops, not really doing particularly well. So they come up with this idea to have a, like an antiques roadshow type of a, an appraisal day and hopefully bring in some business. It doesn't work out that well, but, but what does happen is, is a woman comes and offers Arabella a chance to appraise the contents and an old daguerreotype, which is a type of photograph um, from a house that, that she's, she's the executor of. And it turns out that that's, that house is also um, a house that Emily is very interested in. So there's a potential conflict of interest. Another person interested in the house says it is Miles Pemberton, who has like a TV show, uh, Pemberton on property. And so there's that angle. And then, of course, you know, Arabella gets in there and she finds a will and that complicates things. So it's just a, it's just a cozy, happy feel good kind of book. There's not even a murder in it. There's just a mystery. Yeah. And yeah, it, it is, it is feel good. And I'm not going to get into the ending, but it, it was, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So now I was on your blog and uh, I read about how you trained for the 2002 Ottawa marathon and being a retired personal trainer, fantastic, fantastic. I've uh, I've done a half, and again, there's so much work involved on your body training for something like that. So I was interested in this blog post, A, because of used to being a phys uh, personal trainer, and then also as a writer, and your story about because you're doing a training run. And so if you haven't run a half marathon or a marathon, people, there are training runs and some of them get to be very long. Okay. Because you're training. And on one of your training runs, you met a fellow runner named Dan. And I just love the whole story of your conversation with Dan. And can you tell the listeners your conversation with Dan and how it tied into later a uh, book signing and chapters and the Cecil George Harris story and the tractor like that's awesome. Yeah. So that's true. Yeah. Ottawa was my first marathon. I'd done a couple halves before that. And I've actually done four marathons and I think 30 something half marathons since then. So um, a little bit of a glutton for punishment on that end, I will say. But this was my very first marathon in 2002 and I was terrified and I had this like, I think, I think honestly that it was going to be a good three hour run, terrible winter day, um, went, went to the running room, which is where I was running out of uh, with my marathon group and no, none of my group was there. And I was a very slow runner, still am a very slow runner. And Dan was one of the blistering fast runners, like a nice guy, but I never really got to know him because he was always like showered and changed and home by the time I got back to the story. Right? So anyway, this day I get there and there's no, none of my friends are there. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to do my run. I'm, I'm here. I'm going to do it by myself. And Dan, bless his heart, came up to me and said, oh, you can't run by yourself. I'll run with you. And like he must have felt like he was running in chains because he was like, like he's like, I think he's finished um, 
a marathon in like under three hours. Okay, so that yeah, that'll give you an idea. And I was kind of like your five-hour marathoner, so you could just imagine like how slow he must have felt, right, poor guy. But anyway, we ran, and he was, and I knew he was in something in construction, and. He said, oh, I don't really want to be in construction. He said, I want to be a lawyer one day. And I said, really, I'm, I'd like to um, I'd like to write a, a murder mystery. And so we both kind of chuckled about that, right? Yeah. So that was 2002. I mean, I didn't even start writing a book for 10 years. But long story short, back then in 2019, I'm in chapters with a bunch of books in front of me, and it's very quiet in there, and I'm thinking, oh, you know, it's going to be one of those days. And in walks Dan, who hasn't aged a day, and says, I saw that you were going to be here, and I just had to tell you how proud I am that you, you, know, you followed your dream. And it turned out that he had too. He'd gone to law school, and now he was um, specializes in estate law. Mm. And I said, estate law? I said, you know, I'm in this book I'm working on right now. I really could use like some legal opinion on like some... Uh, this will that the, 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 the that uh, my protagonist finds, and I've done some research online. But you know, you can't always trust what you read online, right? Because oh, he said, like, just send me your questions. Yeah. So I did, and uh, and he told me about um, and and one of the questions was, was about a holograph will. This is a, a will that they find is a holograph will, which is a will that that you you write that that um, that a lawyer hasn't had anything to do with right it's just handwritten i leave such and such to so and so and it's just your handwriting okay and so he said uh, the most famous holograph will was that of cecil george harris who uh, was pinned under his tractor in and on his farm in saskatchewan and he carved into the fender of the tractor if i die in this mess i leave everything to my wife and that actually became a hol was was considered a holograph will and it's now um, on display at the University of Saskatchewan. That is fascinating. Uh, I know and of course I had to put that detail in the story because it was just so cool right like wow. that's the thing and that's why I always say to people too that are that when they're starting out especially and it helps that I was a journalist for many years but you just don't just rely on, you know, Wikipedia and Google, like if like get to an expert because they're going to tell you the cool stories that, yes. that set that set everything apart. Right. Yeah. Um, that's where you're going to get your cool little tidbits. And it's it just those little small things, I think, bring a story to life. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I know um, from some of my analytics, I have legal assistants and lawyers who listened to this. So when I saw that, I thought, oh, I got to get her to tell this story. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> it's a great story, I know. Yeah. And how it works in, right? With, yeah. With, yeah. So all your novels take place in Ontario. And from what I understand, your characters, they cross over in your different novels? So not all my characters cross, but... So um, the mark in the Marketville Mysteries, the protagonist, her name is Calamity Barnstable, Callie, and she sort of digs into cold cases, you know. And so um, in the first book, she finds a, a, a locket that and, and she turns to her old friend, Arabella Carpenter. And says, I found this antique locket. What, what can you tell me about it? Right. So Arabella's she's got a very minor role, but she's got a a role as an antiques expert helping Callie as she's solving cold cases. 
And the second book, Arabella also makes an appearance. And in, in the third book, um, Arabella makes an appearance, but so does her ex-husband, Levon Larroquette, who is also an antiques picker. And he um, helps Calamity with um, a discussion on um, flash art, which is um, tattoo art from okay. like the 50s and 60s. Um, so he's sort of a collector of that. And that, that tattoo sort of theme runs through that book. So um, I love that when, like, I'm a big fan of Michael Connolly, and he does that. Like, he weaves different characters in and out, and uh, Tana French does that. She's an Irish writer. Um, so I really enjoy when, when authors do that, and it's kind of fun. And if somebody's read the Glass Dolphin series and starts with Marketville, they're going to go, oh, Arabella, I know her, right? So it's almost like a little familiar thing. So they live in different towns, but they live in towns fairly close together. That's neat. Yeah. yeah, it's fun. So you had touched upon this. The next thing I would like to know about is how did you decide that Arabella was going to be the expert on, and I'm going to try to pronounce pronounce this, the daguerreotype. And can you explain what that is? And the history, you, this is the other thing I liked when I was reading, you give the history about the daguerreotype and you do it very well because it's not it you get all the the reader gets all the information and it's fascinating but it's not it's not like a textbook but anyways I'll, if you could explain that sure so it's actually daguerreotype okay. um so i learned about these very early on while i was working for for new england antiques journal um, I interviewed a man by the name of Keith Davis, who is a renowned expert on daguerreotypes. And what they are is they're a, it, it almost look like a holographic image, but it was a very early form of photography. It was very, very popular in the uh, 1850s, 1860s, and then it kind of died out um, for the next next new thing, uh, tintypes and ambrotypes. But so it was a it was a very long process, like the early daguerreotypes it would take like several hours, you know, they, they were, you know, for people to have their picture taken or, um, and then it gradually got reduced down and reduced down. Uh, but they're really, um, really, really beautiful. If you ever see one, like they're, they're just absolutely gorgeous. And some people will say that even with all the advances in digital photography, nothing really can mimic a, a really well shot daguerreotype. Um, now there's lots of bad ones as well, but oh, sorry about that. <laughs> just, one, just one moment, please. Hold on. Hold on. It's oh, all good. Okay, it's all good. Please continue. Please continue, okay. Judy. <laughs> no worries. Okay, so um, yeah. So anyway, um, yeah. So the the when, whenever you're doing something like this, like the history and that, as you say, it's you want to put it in, like you want to say, yeah, this was really popular in the 1850s and all of that. But you, yeah, like you say, it can't be like a history lesson, right? So generally when I'm writing those types of scenes, I write them really, really long. And then I cut them way back, right? To, and, and to the point where I think, okay, you know, I've made my point, but it doesn't sound like a, like I'm lecturing people or like a magazine article or, or whatever. 
But again, I think that that goes back to my experience as the, the senior editor at NAAJ, where we would get experts writing about whatever their thing was, like stone, some sort of stoneware, like a potter or something. And because they were, you know, mostly, um, you know, experts just in that thing, they would write a long article that sometimes wasn't very interested interesting the information was interesting but the way they wrote it wasn't that interesting so I kind of have to revise it so it became you know something that anybody could understand even if they didn't collect whatever it was that they were the expert in right so I think that's sort of how I um, got with that but yeah they're really they're, they're beautiful if you ever get a chance to see one in a museum like you should okay okay I've really enjoyed your character, Emily. And as it happens, I like I still work full time and I have a coworker. And her name is Emily. And oh my gosh, it, it was great, especially the scene when your character Emily gets a cold and she's getting medicine and Mike Pemberton barges in front of her that scene I thought yep yep that's what that's that's what my the Emily I know would do okay and um and it, it's interesting with writing because you don't know this as you're as the author you don't know that you're going to okay I'm going to put this name to this character and this is what this character is going to do and then here I am on the west coast reading your book and I've just I so connected with her because I happen to know someone who has the exact same name and has similar characteristics. You have two strong female characters in this novel. You have Arabella and you have Emily. They each have their own story. And I was wondering, how do you maintain a balance so one character doesn't dominate or overshadow the story of the other? So that's a good question. Like in the first book, The Handyman's News, Emily is clearly the protagonist. She's the one that comes to town and um, digging up dirt on, on stuff. And Arabelle's a bit of the, you know, more of the sidekick, right? And um, in, the, in the second book, Hole in One, I wanted um, Arabella to become the protagonist. And Emily sort of took a back seat. The third book, I really wanted them to be equal because, again, I knew it was the last book. So they each got their shot in the spotlight. Now I want them to be, um, you know, share the spotlight. So I, I sort of what I did was I basically almost alternated, you know, point of view chapter by chapter so that you were able to get in the heads of both of them. And as you say, they're. They're both strong women, but they're they're very different from one another. Like Ar Arabella is never going to want to, you know, settle down and have children. And that's what Emily wants. And Arabella is never going to run a marathon. But Emily's done that. Right. Yeah. So they're, you know, they're different people. But um, I think what makes them work is that they 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 seem real. They have faults. Right. Yeah. They have faults. They, you know, Emily, when she had her bad cold, I always feel this way about a, about a bad cold. Like you get a cold, people go, oh, that's too bad. But nobody really feels sorry for you. But yeah, you feel so bloody miserable, right? So, <laughs> I, just, I, mean, I don't think people, when they get a cold, get the proper amount of sympathy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, that scene, though, that particular scene where 
in that takes place in the dollars to donuts store, yeah. dollar store where Miles Pemberton barges in in front of her. Like the, there's a lineup, and you know there's a like big long lineup, and then another cashier opens and says, "I'll take the next person in line." And instead of taking the next person going. Like he's at the end of the line. He goes barging in. Well, that actually happened to me at a Dollarama. Very mm-hmm. same situation. And I remember saying to the guy, like, well, this is a bit rude. Like we, we've we all been waiting. And he sort of, you know, he was really, you know, like as soon as you lose, like he was just horrible. And so I got home and I thought, that's going to get in a book one day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it did. Yeah. Everything, nothing is every, nothing is sacred with me. Everything, every experience eventually gets into a book somewhere. (laughs) Yeah, I remember I had a bad experience where just this this fellow on a bike scared the crap out of my dog and I. My dog, well, you just my dog is eighteen pounds, okay? But you you heard his ten alarm bark, right? And this this man scared both of us. And so I ended up walking away from the situation as he came down, down his bike because he had dropped his cell phone. And like you said, after he disappeared, I continued my walk home. And I remember thinking, okay, you know how your heart's feeling right now. Write this down. Yeah. Yes. We do that. Yeah. Well, the yeah, other we thing. We may as well use it, right? Yeah. Yeah. You're going to scare the hell out of me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And actually it was good therapy after, because after I wrote it down, I was like, okay, I can move on. Right. So um, yeah, but no, oh my God, that scene with Emily in it for me, now, again, you wrote this novel, not this year, you know, cause we know how time takes with writing a novel. And here we are in the middle of COVID. Mm. And I'm reading this scene with Emily having this cold, and I just thought, oh my God, if that was to happen like right now, right? Like that, you know, amongst COVID. And, you know, and I'm feeling sorry for her because we are in this pandemic. Dave Butler and I talked about this a little bit, and that was with authors addressing COVID in novels. And, you know, he had said, you don't want to date your novel. Let's say two years from now, someone reads it and, oh, well, this novel was situated during COVID. But you also don't want to totally ignore it. Um, I know with mine, I'm going to have it, the story take place after COVID. So do you think COVID has changed or altered the atmosphere of your next novel? What, what are, how are you looking at it? It has, it has and it hasn't. So I was working, I generally work on two or three things at the same time, which sounds weird, but it's the way I am. So if one story's not working for me one day, I switch to the other one, you know, and actually things get done. But so I was working on a standalone suspense um, before COVID hit and really pretty happy with how it was coming along. I have not been able to work on that book since COVID. I've tried, but I just can't, for some reason, I can't get to that dark place. I don't want to get to the dark place, I guess is, is the, tr- the truth of it, right? It's kind of a darker, um, it's a definitely got a darker vibe to it than, than my cozier series. And I just couldn't, I just couldn't bring myself to do it. I'm, I plan on finishing that book, but I think the world has to be a, a nicer, kinder, healthier place before I can do that. Um, 
And so that's changed. Uh, and so I actually just started writing a new series that, that I've had an idea of, about it for quite some time, a couple of years anyway, but just never really thought it was the time to start. And now, but it's going to be kind of more of a happy, feel good, cozy. And I thought, this is the time I want to write about that. And am I going to address COVID in it? No, absolutely not. I'm not. I'm going to, I'm going to write it as though that's all been taken care of and we're not going to live in the past. And I, I kind of look at it this way. Um, you know, if I, if I look at, you know, murder, she wrote, there was like, I don't know how many murders in Cabot Cove, but, but people, they suspend their disbelief. So, yes. because they want to just escape. So I'm, I want to write something that's an escape from an unhappy world. Um, so I'm, I'm not going to address the COVID thing. Um, yeah. It's interesting because I'm, I'm a, I, I've been watching, I've been watching Grey's Anatomy for like ever, well, yeah. since it started and they, they are really addressing the COVID thing there. And I, I find that appropriate because it's a story to set in a hospital. So they pretty much have to, right. But yeah. I'm not sure everything, everything that we write or do has to be colored by. And, and I just hope that in a year from now, we're, you know, at the point where we're able to live our lives a little, a little less um, fearfully. Yes. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. And it's interesting because I'm finding I'll talk with different people. Some of my friends who are avid readers have been telling me, I don't have the, I don't have the patience. I don't have the, um, the, uh, the will, the desire to read right now. I went through a stage with my art where I thought I do not have the mindset to illustrate a motorcycle. So I'm just going to do something else. I'll illustrate something else. And I saw a writer on Instagram. She had said that she usually writes longer stories. And she said, I, I just, I don't have the concentration, but what she's doing is she said, I'm writing 10 minutes a day. And I thought, yes, yes. Right. So, yeah, so. well, I think that's it. Like, I think we've all, you know, like, really, I've often said that my life has not changed that much because of COVID. Um, I'm lucky, you know, the people in my bubble have all remained safe. Yeah, um, we have a place in northern Ontario, and I do mean northern Ontario. It's uh, north of it's north of Sault Ste. Marie. If you're aware of where that is? It's on Lake Superior, and I spent five months there over the spring, summer, fall, and they had four cases of COVID in that entire time. So it's pretty, you know, you're pretty safe with four cases. And they think I today I think they have like nine cases or something altogether from the beginning. Right. Yeah. There's just such a like north north. Um, now, back here in southern Ontario, the, the numbers are considerably higher. Um, but, yeah, it's just a it's just a uh, it's just changed the way we live our lives. And in some ways better. I mean, in some ways, I think we've um, become maybe kinder. I've certainly learned patience, you know, yeah. standing in line. <laughs> I never used to have much patience getting lots of patience now so it's not all bad but anyways I am lucky and but I, and what I would say is you know as a writer you spend a lot of time by yourself in your room making up stories and um, so you're not seeing people and you know you can work in your pajamas or whatever yeah so I was sort of surprised at how much I missed going out and just you know going to the library going to the store because I never really factored that into my 
my life. You know what I mean? And now I realize those things were more important to me than I realized. I understand. And it's interesting because out of the things that didn't have the focus to do, I I know I'd be asked this, um, you know, I'd say, no, there's no way I can sit down and illustrate and draw a complicated motorcycle. (laughs) But the one thing I could keep doing was writing. So yeah, it's interesting how the mind copes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, okay. Speaking of novels, short stories, you have many novels published and you also have short stories in anthologies and collections. I've had three short stories published and I will admit that I find the short story format harder than the novel. I was wondering how do you find writing a novel compared to writing a short story, vice versa? Is it easy, is one easier than the other? How, how, do you, how do you find it? So I'm with you. I, I love the short story form and I read a lot of anthologies. And of course I publish anthologies. So I really enjoy the short mystery story. Writing them for me is torturous. <laughs> I, 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 I've, writ- I've had some success. To be honest, I don't write that many because I do find it torturous. And I think part of it, and I'd be interested to know if you're, are, are you a pantser? Like you just sort of write by the seat of your pants or do yep. you plot everything out? I'm a pantser. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why, and I am too. And I believe that that's why short stories are hard for us because when you're a pantser, you can just sort of wind your way down a merry little path. And so you go in this direction or that direction. You don't have to know where, what it, what's happening or anything because you've got like 60 or 70,000 words to you know get your story up. But in a short story, you don't have that luxury. You've basically mm-hmm. got to know right at the beginning, what's going to happen at the end. And if you don't, you're going to waste a lot of time not getting to where you need to be. Right. So I think, I think the thing is with short story to, to make it easier, you have to, you have to have an outline and I'm not very good at outline. I'm terrible at outlining. So I think that's why I find it so challenging. Yeah. And I think the, 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 the prolific short story authors that I do know, like John Floyd comes to mind, he's like written hundreds and he's very, very successful. Um, he says he couldn't imagine writing a short story without plotting it. Couldn't imagine, couldn't begin to imagine. So we see it's a different way of writing. And I think that's why we find it difficult, right? Okay. Uh, uh, you make me feel better because I thought, I, sometimes I thought, okay, am I the only one who like really, no. really finds this hard? <laughs> short it's story. hard. It's hard. And it's, it's, you know, and right now I've got submissions open for um, Moonlight Misadventure. And I've gotten, I've had 45 stories come in so far. And I've read, I read them as they come in because, you know, and then I sort of lump them into categories as long list, yeah, um, long list, no, maybe, right? Okay. So maybe so I have to read again um, before I either put them in the no or the long list. Um, so there's something about the maybe. When they're maybe, it's like they're not bad enough to be a no, but I haven't really, you know, thought they might not. Uh, there's something about this holding me back from putting them on my long list. But sometimes it could be my mood or whatever. So that's why I put them in that maybe category. But anyway, the long story short is that out of the 45 stories, I mean, at least a dozen in my mind were not very good, right? I'm not saying that I like, I'm not saying that because, you know, reading is subjective, but because they had, they didn't, you could tell that they kind of were all over the board and not zoned in on the point. Whereas the people that are already on the long list, 
you know, you read it as soon as I read it, I'm like, yes, you know, this has a good beginning, middle and end. It may not make it into the anthology. It may, you know, maybe because as good as it is, it would be a better fit somewhere else. Right. But there's a style of writing short story. And I think to be good, you have to read a lot of them as well. I think you can't okay. just write them. You have to read them. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Getting on to writing and approaches and pantser or plotter or outline. The traditional approach you hear about is the three-act structure where you have the inciting event, rising tension to the climatic scene, resolution. And if you follow, I've been, I've been listening and I've been learning that if you follow this approach, you will pull your reader into the story. Then I hear about the expressive approach, which is total me, totally me, where the writer is not concerned about the reader or the audience. The writer is the audience. The writer is writing for the writer's benefit. That is so me. I'm, I'm not thinking about my reader. I'm thinking about, I want to, I want to take myself on that roller coaster ride and just, this is for my enjoyment. I was wondering, what is your approach to writing? Is it one or the other or a combination? So the way I write is, again, because I'm a pantser, yeah. um, I write and I write, I tend to write short chapters as well. Um, okay. And so when I'm writing, when I'm, and when I'm working on a project, I try to write a chapter a day. That's my goal. So not a word count. I don't do like I need 2000 words a day or 500 words. It's like I try to write a chapter and if the chapter is 750 words and I've done that, that's it. I don't do any more on that for that day. I might go to another book, but I'm not going to go back to that. So, so the idea is that at the end of every chapter, I, I leave a hook that makes me want to come back, you know, so I'm not thinking about the reader. I'm thinking, I need to come back to this book tomorrow and I got to get to the next chapter and it, and, and write it. And I need something that's going to make me want to do that. So that's my hook for me. So I really am writing for me. I don't think about acts or three acts or 20 acts or any of that. Um, I'm basically telling myself the story. I'm making it up as I go along. Right. Um, and I'm telling myself the story. And, um, and the best way is almost to describe it as like you're sitting sounds like I'm sitting in a bar with you and we're each having a glass of wine and I'm telling you a story and I go, and then this happened and that's the end of the chapter. And then I start again and blah, 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 blah. And then, and then this happened and that's the end of that chapter. So you know what I mean? So it's all telling, it's just like telling the story. And I think if you do that, um, if you, if you're telling the story to yourself and you're, you're leaving little hooks at the end of chapters that, that make me want to go back, then theoretically the reader should also want to go back right? Exactly. So you should also want to read on because you've kind of hooked them along with you. So, you know, if, at the, if, if a chapter just sort of ends flat, um, you know, I mean, we've all had books like that where you've sort of put it down and then it just doesn't call to you anymore. Why? Like, why didn't it call to you? So I always try to, you know, when I'm reading, I also read like a writer. Right. Yeah. So have you noticed in your writing um, since writing The Hanged Man's Noose, have you noticed a change in your writing or in your writing style? And I'm, I'm always thinking about with these podcasts about the new writer who, who may be listening to these podcasts and, and wanting to learn. Well, I've definitely 
a little bit more, I'm not going to say jaded, but realistic. I think, you know, when I was writing The Hangman's Noose, I had, you know, as many people do, many, many aspiring authors, you know, visions of, you know, Stephen King money or whatever. Well, that certainly hasn't happened, yeah, yeah. <laughs> despite the number one status. Um, so, so I think I went. I, I think I went into it being a bit naive about the, the business because it is a business, um, and it's changing all the time, and it can you know can be quite challenging in the publishing world. Um, so that's changed. I think my writing has improved over. Um, I think each book. The, the writing gets stronger. Definitely, I'm faster. You know, the first book took me like two years to write, and I now can write a book in about three months, right? Wow. So now I'm not saying at the end of three months is perfect. It's not, but it's yeah. pretty close. Like I, like I'm, like again, I, I edit as I go along. And that's one thing people say you don't do. I can't just write. I, I have to. So I'm always sort of editing as I'm writing. So like whatever I've written today, tomorrow I'll kind of read that over, make a few changes, then go on to that, finishing my chapter for that day. So by the time I'm finished my first draft, it's pretty close to what it's going to look like at the end. Okay. I know my my critique partner, Carol Ann, she always, you know, our joke is um, <laughs> we'll send emails to each other and I'll say, okay, I've got some first draft porridge here for you to, to kind of see if we can whip this into something you know but it's just get it down that's yeah. and I I will do some self-editing but it's just like okay let's just get this down and I find the really fun part is when you're doing the edits and and different things come to light yeah yeah well I see that's a bit different approach than I do because I definitely am more of an editor as I go. I mean, obviously at the end I do another edit and I hire an editor and all that kind of stuff. But, um, but as I'm writing, I'm much more conscious of, of trying to keep everything clean. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So your market fail mysteries contained three novels. The glass dolphin mysteries contained three novels. Your characters do some crossing over into different series, which I think is really cool. I'm wondering, when do you decide to hang up the coat for that character in that series? And um, I know as a reader, I read a very famous author's series of novels. And I don't want to get in trouble. So that's why I'm being a chicken and I'm not saying who the author was. <laughs> but her series was turned into a TV series and it was the type of series. It was a period piece and people would talk about it around the water cooler when we could work in offices. And what she did was she had the first three novels and they were really good. And I remember reading the third novel where she brought in the, the heroine had a daughter and she brought in the daughter and the daughter was just a great character. And the third book was a lot about the daughter's story. And I was right in there. Okay. I was traveling through time, going everywhere the daughter went. And then when that book was done, I was like, okay, give me the next book. Right. I want the next book. And then I found out that the next book didn't deal with this daughter's story. It went back 
to the mom's story. And I was asking, you know, my sisters who had read the same series, I said, when do we get back to the daughter's story? And they told me, they said, oh, it's about, you know, book seven. And I went, no, because I was so, you know, involved with the daughter's, the daughter's story. So when do you decide? When do you decide that, okay, I'm hanging up the coat, you know, we're, we're done with, with this series of books? Well, I, I think I mentioned earlier with The Glass Dolphin, I knew from the beginning it would be three books. Um, I had a really clear definition of how I wanted to leave those characters in their lives. Um, they're in a good place. That, does that mean they'll never surface anywhere else? I don't know. Um, I mean, Arabella is probably going to resurface in another Market Vale book. Will Emily surface somewhere maybe but right now there's no plans for that the marketville mysteries there's three books in the series now um i have still more ideas for it so i believe that i will continue and i actually am working on one of the other things i'm doing is i'm working on the prequel so the first book skeletons in the attic um it's uh, the story of Calamity Barnstable and she inherits a house from her um, late father. Um, and, it, and the condition is that she has to find out who murdered her mother 30 years before. And this is a kind of a big surprise to her. So, um, so she moves to Marketville from Toronto and starts digging into the past and um, finds, you know, uh, some things maybe she'd have been happier not knowing, but anyways. Uh, so, the thing is that that her mother um, had had um, calamity when her mother was seventeen, and so I thought, okay, I would like to tell Abigail—that's the mother's name, Abigail's story—from when she was seventeen. You know, sort of tell that story. So that's it. So that's what I'm working on now. It's called "Before There Were Skeletons," and so it'll take place in 1976. And uh, it'll, uh, I, I not, the only thing is, and I'm not, because I'm pantsing it, I'm not sure if I'm going to keep the whole thing in 1976 or I'm going to try to blend it with the, with the, with the present. Yeah. So I've, I've, you know, I've actually had 10,000 words written and, and just deleted the whole thing because I didn't think it was good. Um, so I'm starting again. <laughs> That was like a long time though. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, sometimes you just know it's not good. Like it's not good, you know, so then move on. Um, so I think, and I do have an idea for a, um, like a continuation in the series so that, you know, I'm not sure when I'll hang that one up right now. I'm still enjoying the series. So I think at some point, you know, you just know maybe it should end and then's the time to end it, you know? And I, I do think sometimes some authors that have a very popular series that sometimes they go on longer than maybe they should. Right. You know, at some point they've kind of had their day and yet they're still churning out books because, you know, I guess they're still sailing. I don't know. Um, but, or you could say that about certain TV series, maybe they should have hung it up, you know, earlier, like right. happy days. They always say when Fonzie jumped the shark or whatever. Right. So I think, um, you know, I, I I hope I'll know when it's time to hang up a series. I, I did with Glass Dolphin. I I hope I do with Marketville. Um, yeah. But I think I think you, you know when when you're just not having fun with it anymore, like when you don't when it becomes like a, something you dread, then I think it's 
you know, then it's time definitely to say forget it. And I always go back to, um, I don't know if you've ever read anything by Giles Blunt. He's a um, Ontario author and he writes the Cardinal Mystery Series. And I said like, Charles, I'm sorry, you said Charles Blunt? Giles, Giles, G-I-L-E-S Blunt. And he writes now. the Cardinal Mystery Series and they're set in Algonquin Bay, which is a thinly disguised North Bay, which is where Giles is from. And his series has been made into um, a mini series through, um, I think it's CBC. It's phenomenal. Like it's phenomenal. The acting's phenomenal. The series is phenomenal. You, you should catch it if you can. It's really, really good. But anyways, I saw Giles. This would have been back when I was still like aspiring, right? And um, you know, in his in his third book, Cardinal's wife um, is killed, and that's you know. Um, she had bipolar, and so that factored into the first two books quite a bit, that she was bipolar. Uh, anyway, so I saw him at an author reading, and somebody said to him, like, why did you, you know, kill off Cardinal's wife, Catherine? And he said, I just got so tired of her bipolar, I couldn't deal with it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, I had to laugh at that because... That's how sometimes you feel like if you're, if you're tired of your character, probably your readers are too. So that yeah. he knew it was time to kill um, Catherine and off she went. Oh God. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, it's interesting because I know you're, you're mentioning about amongst the, the pre, the pre story, the prequel, right? Yes. And um, so the, the sequel I'm working on to my first one, it's going to feature the mom's story. Oh, but, cool. But so here's the thing. I write in the first person. Yeah. Me but too. I yeah. I do have scenes where it's the mom and it's in the third person. And as I'm doing this, I'm thinking, yeah, I know I'm breaking a rule somewhere. But I don't know whether it's being 50-ish, but I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> it works for the story. <laughs> I'm doing it. Right. Yeah. And, and others have done that now. Right. So no. I think, I think there's so many things that we can look at, like where, where people have done that. Like I, I write one series in third, which is glass dolphin and the market bills in first. Um, yeah. When I write the prequel, I've tried to write it in first and I didn't feel it was working. So I think I'll end up writing that in third, even though that others, the rest of it's in first, but it's first in Cali's world yeah. right so if i'm running in the past i don't know so i think it's okay i think i think we can break rules today a yeah. little easier than you could in the past but you just you know again it all boils down to if it's a good story people will want to read it right right so thinking of the new authors out there the new writers are you able to give a marketing tip because that's also part of writing now mm -hmm. i mean yeah, marketing is a big part, and it's not a part that I particularly enjoy, quite frankly. Um, I would have no social media presence if it wasn't for being an author. Actually, before my book was published, I didn't have a Facebook page. I was probably the only person that didn't have Facebook or Twitter or any of that stuff. I, I find them, you know, but what I would say to new authors or uh, aspiring authors, people that are still working, start building that presence right from the beginning um, because people will look for that, right? People will look for a Facebook presence. People will look for, you know, like you can't do it all. So do the one that you like, you know, like if you like Instagram, then, then do that. Um, you know, if you like Facebook, then do that. If you like Twitter, do that. Like you, you can't do them all. 
um, no. well, right? So you can have a bit of a presence on everything, but, you know, really focus your attention and time on one, I would say. Um, and if you don't have a website, start one. Like you, you're yeah. going to need a website. So especially if you're looking for agents, or I think they need to see that. And, you you know, I, I've had people say to me, but, you know, like who's going to read, you know, my thing? I, I, you know, nobody's ever heard of me. And that's probably true. So you don't have to spend a lot of time on it. Maybe once a month you write an article about, you know, what you're learning or something in my early blogs, it was all about how to, you know, what I, you know, my, my, my most popular one in the beginning was like how, how I got rejected by an agent who basically assured me that I had a deal and then rejected me. (laughs) I was heartbroken. Um, But, you know, like I wrote about it and, and it resonated because it's not just, it didn't just happen to me. It happens to lots of people. Right. So I think, um, you know, that I would also say, if you, you have to be careful that it's not, well, here's, enough about me. Here's more about me. You know what I mean? Like, like you have to, so what I find with my Facebook author pages, I will post things about certainly about other authors, but also my dog. I I do a Wednesday waggles every, every Wednesday Gibbs reports in with a picture and a little story. And he's very popular. And I I think people, um, they, they appreciate that. And the thing is, if you, and then if you will also connect with dog lovers, cause they'll be like, well, she's got a dog. She can't be all bad. Right. So, yeah. um, so I think it's really care. So, you know, just that. And then also if you are, you know, uh, if you are going to want to have a social media presence and you, you are hoping to get followers, you know, avoid anything that's going to get you in trouble. Like you will have your own political views, keep them to yourself. Right. Yes. You have religious views. Keep them to yourself. Unless your book is, you know, you're basing your books on a certain religion. That's different because that will build your following. Right. But otherwise, keep those opinions to yourself because, you know, there you can really alienate people um, if you have a different differing political view than they do. Yeah. And frankly, you know, I think more people, I wish more people would keep their opinions to themselves on Facebook. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You can't, you can't even like, you can't even like a post about, you know, you just got to avoid that. You've got to avoid that because, you know, again, people get very, very, they have very strong opinions on, on, politics or religion or uh, anything that could be slightly contentious just try to avoid it you know yeah yeah so i yeah because i know (laughs) it's funny you mentioned about dogs because i swear it doesn't matter what you know i could i could sell an illustration to someone in colorado but the day i post a photo of my dog i don't know with a new haircut he gets more likes than anything i've done of course they do they do (laughs) people just they absolutely, um, you know, can't wait for my Wednesday waggles. And it's always like a cute thing, you know, like he's wearing a pair of boots or something. He's a golden retriever, so he doesn't like wearing winter boots, but sometimes it's so cold he has to, or he, I can't walk him. And so, you know, I'll take a picture of him looking like all woebegone in his boots, you know. And, and say, can you believe Judy made me wear these stupid boots or something? And people love it. They just love it, right? So, yeah, I think, and you know what? I have fun doing it too, right? Why not? Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. So what type of dog do you have? He's a, this is my, uh, he's a golden retriever. He's five. This is my fourth golden retriever as an adult. And I had a, had a mix as a kid. So that's my breed. You know, people tend to be breed specific, right? You have a type of dog. You tend to keep going to that same type of dog. This is what I've discovered with most people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, that's like Aussie. We had a schnoodle before, which was a miniature schnauzer yeah. poodle mix. And now we have him and he's a mini schnauzer. And you know, like I know there's times he will interrupt a podcast, but hey, that little fur ball, he's eight and he has been my running partner since he was a year old. That's fantastic. So his little paw, yeah, his little paws has seen a lot of pavement. So he has earned his place oh, yeah. in the in the studio, right? So so I'm back to back to writing. Um can you tell our listeners? some of whom are writers, what the call for submissions for Moonlight and Misadventure is about. Right. So I have a publishing imprint now called Superior Shores Press. And I, um, my first anthology under that was The Best Laid Plans that came out in June 2019. And um, that one was sort of a, you know, hopefully it would work out kind of thing. And it did uh, actually that um, anthology, three of the stories in there were up for awards, one won an award. So that was pretty cool. Um, And it was um, also the entire anthology was um, long listed for a killer Nashville silver falchion award. So that's very exciting. Um, This year I released heart, Breaks and Half Truths. So there were 22 stories in there, one by me and 21 by other authors. And, um, and this, t- this year, uh, and there, and the, both the anthologies are selling really well and getting really good reviews. And actually, um, Heartbreaks was uh, blurbed in Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine. So that was really kind of exciting. Um, so, yeah. So as far as um, Moonlight Misadventure, so basically the, call went out in October and it will close January 15th or when I reach a hundred submissions last year, I, for heartbreaks, I got 106 submissions and a lot of them came in like the last day or two. And I'm on a short timeline to read them, um, you know, put them in their categories. And then my long list, I send to somebody else and, you know, have them read them. And then we kind of decide, you know, so there's a lot of work involved before I can, um, you know, get to the point where I'm actually working with the authors and sending out acceptances and rejections and paying them and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah. but the, the deal is that it's got their short stories. They have to be between 1500 and 5,500 words. Um, no um, bad language, no really overt violence or anything. And they have to fit a theme of moonlight and misadventure. So there has to be moonlight and there has to be some sort of misadventure. Um, it doesn't have to be murder, and but it has to have those elements in it. And it, it doesn't, and please no werewolves. I don't, I don't get werewolves. I don't want anything. I don't want no werewolves. Um, so that's that. And then, uh, yeah, so um, all the guidelines are on my website. Um, very, very clear. It lists everything out, the way the payments work. Everything's listed in there. So, um, you know, I, I encourage um, authors, whether you've never been published or you've been published many times, to um, consider submitting. And I respond to every single submission 
to let people know that they they've been received and i respond um, to everybody after after i've made my decision so people are aware of what's going on and if i don't accept something um, I try to give a bit of a reason for it. Um, I can't give much of a reason because, you know, if there's 100 and I'm picking 20 stories, there's 80 people that didn't make the cut. So, but if there's, if, if it's something that I, or sometimes I'll say to people, I, I really liked it. I didn't think it was right for the collection, but you might want to try ascending it here or there, right? So if, it's a, if I think it's a strong story, but just wasn't right for the collection, then I will um, try to, try to help them find another market for it. So, cause I, you know, at the end of the day, I'm a writer, I've been rejected. I know what it feels like not to hear. So I, I, yeah. I want to take that and, you know, my experience. And what I, I think is, is cool is that, you know, authors that have been in the first or second books are, are still are submitting again. So they've obviously had a positive first experience or they wouldn't be doing that. Right. So, um, yeah, so it's kind of, it's sort of fun for me. I like short stories. That's where I got my, my start, even though I'm not particularly uh, great at them. And I just want to pay that forward a bit. That is awesome. Yeah. Thank you. And the deadline again for submissions January is 15th or until a hundred submissions have been received. And as of today, I've had received 45. So we're about halfway there. Okay. Okay. So Judy, what's next? You are very busy. Mm, I am, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I'm busy with Crimers of Canada. I'm, I was elected as chair this year, and that was a big honor. I've been on the board for four years: regional rep, director, vice chair, and now chair. Um, and so there's a lot involved in that. I'm really trying to to make um, add value for our members. And I think we're doing that, even though COVID has made it challenging. We, you know, try to do some things for our members and we've got some really good plans for 2021. So, you know, anybody out there that writes mysteries, if you're not a member, please consider joining. If you're, if you're an aspiring writer, we have an associate membership category and we're starting a mentorship program hopefully in 2021. So, you know, and we have lots of benefits beyond that. So hopefully people will look into that. So that's one thing that's, that I'm very busy with. Um, and then, like I said, I'm, I've got this new series that I've just started and um, yeah, so lots of things on the go. Yep. Great. So my last and favorite question, and you have three strong, you three have three heroines. Okay. Arabella. Emily and Calamity Callie Barnstable stepped off the pages of your novel because they wanted to have a few words with you. What would each of them say? Well, I hope that they they will say thanks for giving me some time because I really don't know what they'd say to me. I mean, like they're all sort of little bits of me, right? You know, I mean, they're not me, none of them are me, but they've all got elements of me in them. Um, So I'm not really sure what they would say to me, to be honest with you. I just think, um, I hope that they're pleased with the way I've treated them. Good. I, you know, I love that question because for me, when I, I have heard such a variety of answers and it's, it's always neat to hear what the, the author is going to come up with. Before we end off, is there anything you would like to add? Um, I would just say, you know, because you said you do have writers are here or um, aspiring 
uh, authors that listen. And so my, you know, my, my best advice to you would be, um, you know, what Agatha Christie said, write every day, even if you don't feel like writing, even if what you're writing isn't very good, write every day. And, you know, if you do that, you'll eventually get to the end, which is what we're all looking for. And your social media presence, where can people find you on the socials? Yeah, so Facebook, it's Judy Panshelik. Um, Instagram, it's Judy Panshelik. Twitter, it's Judy Panshelik. Um, so <laughs> I'm not huge on Instagram or Twitter. Um, really, I'm not. I, but Facebook, I tend to post something, you know, every day. Um, for me personally, I know a lot of people hate Facebook, um, but for me personally, it, it seems to be the what where I get the most bang for my, my social media time. I find Instagram is more, you know, people posting pictures of like what they ate or, you know, where they went or I, I don't find it a, a, be a particularly great way to market. Right. Okay. Yeah. But that's okay. just me. Somebody else may have a totally yeah. different experience. Well, it's been great having you, Judy. It really has. And uh, I really enjoyed, um, your latest and you definitely ended it in an in a fashion where you you could pick it up again you know can can have another carry on with more stories well we'll see what happens anyways it's it really <laughs> nice to be on here it was fun chatting with you thank you thank you okay well bye judy bye.